Hiya, welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability, the built environment and zero carbon goals. This week we are with Kit Knowles of Ecospheric, uh, a man Jeff described as being a built environment polymath, and he's not wrong. Just heads up, there's a lot in this. We did have a structure where we wanted to talk about the research he's doing and the retrofit work that they're doing to their office building, which is a period hall or manor house, uh, lime hall, limb hall, which is all really interesting stuff. But we got derailed by the conversation because he's a man with an awful lot to say. So we start off talking about building design strategy and strategy more generally. We eventually do get into the research they're doing by way of pioneering retrofit work, passive house, building standards, planning, heritage. Man, it was a lot. I feel like I benefited from listening to the edit just now. So it's another long one. It's absolutely worth it. It was great. So I'll shut up now and let you listen. Thanks for joining us anyway. And here you go. Who was it that was slagging off the Alex? Oh, he, say. Slagging off. he likened he likened a senior architect to uh, Donald Trump. Who did? Uh, <laughs> oh yes. <laughs> and we had him on. And he realized in retrospect that might not have been the wisest thing to say because his firm wouldn't push it. I mean, I greatly him. appreciate that opportunity because um as I'm sure uh, Jeff has mentioned, I'm fairly candid uh, and it can get me <laughs> in trouble. So yeah. Have you gotten in trouble before, have you? Sorry? Have you have you have you landed yourself in in hot soup before? Uh, not really. I mean, I've only lost jobs that I didn't really want anyway. That's about as bad <laughs> as it's got so far. But that doesn't mean I couldn't. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm getting myself in more and more positions uh, associated with what I know. So it's ending. I'm ending up being in positions that I would never seek, but being drawn into them. And I'm not really changing the personality type to go with that. So that's not ideal, I guess. I've got to do a bit of growth in myself, but it's still at the same time. You're not going to get, make change if you allow people to just business as usual all the time. You got to, you got to hold absolutely. It. And this decorum can be an inhibitor to discourse. Like we worked in a place, Alex and I, the agency we worked at, uh, politesse was uh, deployed as a weapon. Like unless you followed those specific rules of engagement, you would never be heard. And if you followed those specific rules of engagement, the really meaningful conversation could never be had. So yeah, yeah, it's and and more and more, you know, both local and sort of national outfits are uh, they they require that kind of decorum as very much as a kind of prerequisite. And you, there are plenty of people getting kind of blackballed off these off these seats because of it. I mean, it, it's also a balance, isn't it? Obviously, because you need to give other people a chance to talk and give other people um, the the opportunity to kind of um, stay on point if you're trying to get something done. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a balancing act, uh, as always. But I generally find that whenever you're dealing with those types of scenarios, that people love to strategize. I mean, especially when you're dealing with issues of the scale that we're talking about. I mean, Kit specifically mentioned an authority at this point, but we thought it wise to exclude their name. We go on, you'll get the point. They're trying to... 61,000 retrofits per year is their target for seven years to solve the problem, right? 55,000 construction workers required to deliver that in addition to our current uh, skills network. Mm, not a small task. So obviously the result of that is let's let's strategize. Let's think about how we can do that. And that's a, that's a great kind of 
you know, it's the, it's the first part of, a, of, of, of the process in terms of bite-sizing it and getting it, getting it into kind of task and finishes. So the will is, is sensible. The problem is that they're so religiously focused on strategizing that there's never any detail. And if there's no detail, there's actually no understanding. There's no agreement upon the correct approaches, methodologies, techniques, systems. So you don't get into any of that and they refuse to get into any of that and it's never captured. So you now you now move forwards on this kind of wave of strategy when it only takes like a coin rub to realize there's nothing underneath. Oh man, that sounds, I mean, that sounds like strategy or the word strategy used as obfuscation. Absolutely. Good stories across many different boards. You know, I'd love to talk about, um, you know, we've got a group at the moment called Net Zero Carbon. Uh, what are they called? Building Standards. I think that's what it's called. Mm. Um, so it's a, it's a Debnez funded thing. It's You go on there and they've got all the people, RIBA, you know, iStructy, you name it. They're all down there. It's all kind of UK GBC driven. Yeah. And and it's supposed to be setting down a new standard for net zero. So the first thing to understand that for me, a true net zero building can be fairly simply defined whereby you're accounting for, and I'm going to ignore nine planetary boundaries for the time being. We're going to go with um, whole life carbon. So it's not just operational, but whole life carbon. Yeah. Consider that from the perspective of, of, of a properly calculated approach, which means at least something on the basis of a modeled method of PHPP and ideally something along the lines of um, a, dy- a, a dynamic simulation model. So you've got a, a, a solid way of calculating it and that you're including all of the different areas of carbon. And within the operational element as well, you're not... A, deciding just to forget things like unregulated energy. If you can plug it in, don't worry about it. It doesn't count. It's fine. Just ignore it. Hot tubs, just put it in after the certification. We're all good. <laughs> so, you know, the, these kinds of considerations need to be included. So it's a, I call it not just the building certification, but a whole site certification. Because that's the other thing we do in commercial, particularly. It's like, well, that's a high energy bit. Let's just put it in a building out there. And then it doesn't count because our envelope's here. So we can certify as we need so th- these are the sorts of things. So it's a whole site, whole carbon, good fundamental basis of calculation to actually work it all out. And then once you're in a position where you understand all your kind of demands, then you start to look at the the the, the, the renewables, the generation on the flip side, and you have to offset what's left because you have to drive it down and offset what's left. And when you're offsetting what's left, you need to account for anything that you're going to be feeding back to the grid and taking back from the grid. There's going to be at least a 9% loss on that. It's not a complicated figure. Just shove it in there. But you're not going to get one for one. You never do. So understanding that it's a little bit of value into energy management and how you kind of buffer that. And when you generate, you know, east-west versus south-facing arrays is a classic example. These are the sorts of considerations. Bundle all of that up. Put it together so that you're actually aiming for a naught to naught basis, you know, where the, the whatever your demand left has come down with your with your generation. And now you're at net zero carbon. That's that's where you're at. Not ignoring all of those other elements that I've just kind of plucked out there, which is pretty much the way business as usual is currently cracking on in the UK. That's um, amazingly articulate and, and insightful. And again, I'm I'm thinking we can't use it, can you? Can we? You can totally use all of that. Oh, good. Um, Gunning for them because I think we cannot base UK legislation on a standard which clients holistically believe in their heart of hearts that they're delivering a net zero building or or, or product 
which is clearly not nearly net zero in in the true sense of any well in any sense of any words of of any standards of any of any aspects they're just not net zero but you can't have that because as soon as you do that you've got this disjoint which is going to result in just baking in business as usual well this is it and uh, and i think uh I don't know if, if, if you'd agree with this, Kip, but my sense is that if you give people a building like that and they buy into it, they, they purchase it, um, thinking I've got a net zero building, right? Um, and all of this stuff that hasn't been counted, uh, you know, is going to be very much part of how they use the building. Um, uh, and they end up consequently having a very different perception of you know it doesn't live up to their expectations because they've got this magical idea in their head um, about the building um, and the truth uh ignores a lot of that uh is that not a very dangerous position that you kind of um w- once you decouple I'm, I'm always going on about this once you decouple people's uh, uh, uh once you decouple an ostensibly green building standard um from the 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 needs of the user or from the expectations of the user in any way is that not problematic it's hugely problematic beyond problematic it's but it's it's how uh, effectively the entire world of esg works <laughs> so <laughs> when you look at corporate carbon and all of those aspects you know that's how it functions and um and and it's 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 one of these kind of smoke screens that um, is is essentially the embodiment of of greenwash, and we we all need to make that as transparent as possible. And and the problem is obviously that all in all of these cases, it's built around a complex environment. You know, I feel like the the true solution with any of these um, kind of policy driven, strategic driven uh, exercises is that we need to understand and drill into the complexity and then we need to put it in a black box. So there's some inputs and some outputs and that people can just see that and they don't care about what's inside there, but somebody does need to know it. That's the point. And, and, and the avoiding it is a nightmare and it leads to every aspect, you know, not just the fact that people are living in buildings that don't perform the way that they want. So cost, health, comfort, maintenance and durability and carbon, not that it doesn't just conform to delivery on those aspects, which you would fundamentally expect from a sustainable building, but that also, you know, the the the, the targets are going to be missed. Climatically, we're in trouble. And that and that we think that we're patting ourselves on the back saying we've done a good job. This is the worst possible case. You know, we've we knew about this in the 1970s. Again, it was raised, almost embraced, believe it or not, by Margaret Thatcher in the 80s. And yet we are where we are because it's been business as usual, head in the sand, ignore all the detail and just pat each other on the back as often as possible. That's why we're where we're at. Wow. <laughs> Hang on a second. We haven't even got to, around to introductions and stuff, but it's brilliant. Yeah. I mean, we haven't touched any one of the subject matters that we talked about earlier. No, but, no, but it doesn't matter. I mean, this is kind of one of the reasons why I, I was keen to have you on uh, because, you know, I've never had a dull conversation with you. Um, and um, it's kind of high octane. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like a fucking Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. <laughs> um, no, it's it's got there's a kind of a uh, but brainy, you know. Um, uh, I I really enjoy it because I learn a lot, um, and you have a way as well of putting this stuff across in, in in a way that like it's clear that you want to be understood and that you're not just throwing you know complex terminology like Alex and Dan. I don't know you, but you're 
you're presumably following everything Kit is saying, but he's dealing with quite a lot of subject matter. But well, no, you, you like you're drifting into the. So Alex and I, to a degree, are dilettantes in this sphere. Uh, we, you know, I founded the magazine with Jeff or its progenitor a long time ago, and Alex and I have come into this space uh, precisely because an agency we used to work at we dealt with loads of ESG related projects. Hmm. So working with financial services industry. I mean, we did loads of greenwash, and you could tell it was horseshit. Like it was abundantly clear. Like not for everyone, you know. I worked on a couple of projects which were absolutely sincere. Like I worked on a, a ESG fund series where the the campaign creative, like we got the the job because the campaign creative that the the asset manager had commissioned so far was awful. But it was a, an image of a whale leaping out of a fishbowl, like a goldfish bowl. Which is just an absolutely absurd image. I mean, the, the glass is going to smash. That whale is dead in moments. But that it, it sort of typifies the, the the vacuousness of how it is being approached. Every other asset manager said, oh, yeah, we've done ESG for years. <laughs> and they hadn't. They'd done what they cared to interpret it as because, as you alluded, it's a fig leaf. Like it's a salve for a, a bunch of collective consciousnesses, consci- consciousnesses, yeah. So they don't actually have to do anything because it's, ESG. It's just, it the more be I'm involved with, with, with these big companies, the more it becomes very, very clear. You know the way in which the psychology operates within them. So the way that they look, you know, I need to be, I need to deliver a service, and for that service, I have to, I have to have certain prerequisites, right? So if I want to unlock. The ability to um, access, uh, you know, an inf- a tender for given projects. I must be blah 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 blah. And to deliver that, I either have to have reports or skills. And then what happens is that when those reports and skills come into it, first of all, they look into themselves. Do I have the report, the ability to produce report, or the skills in house? The answer is almost never yes. So then what happens is that you move then into, okay, I need to get reports done. So I want to be ISO certified, you know, 14,001 or 20,400, you know, for your your sustainable procurement or your sustainable manufacturing production, those kinds of tick. Lovely. We've got tick. That's a great tick to have. Then we're moving on. We now need to be um, delivering, you know, uh, projects to standards like Briam, Passivhaus, you name it, you know. So we need people that, that can deliver that. So so you get those kinds of skills that are in-house, those kinds of reports that are being produced. But essentially to them, all it is, is I need it and there's a tick box. And to achieve that tick box, I find someone that can deliver it. I pay them. It gets done. There's the report. Anybody ever ask me for it again in the future, I can just ping it off instantly. And and from my perspective, I've done what I need to do. So I've done my scope one, scope two, and scope three calculations. There's my ESG tick done. What does it mean? Where's it going? How is it delivered? What are you actually changing about the way you operate? I can categorically say that the sustainability managers within these giant global companies don't really have a clue. All they are are custodians for a report that somebody else produced. That's yeah. now never accurate. Yeah. And so, so what you alluded to, or what you in fact said directly, was this black box idea where you put the complexity because someone needs to deal it within the black box and you refocus on the inputs and the outputs and the outputs. So we, we believe like ESG, it's a thing that has to happen now because it's what people do. But ESG only really matters when you're able to declare your impact. So your impact in in terms of uh, like social impact, environmental targets, reporting, and actually showing people what that means, telling them like 
offering transparency in that reporting. Like, how did we arrive at these numbers and how can you judge them? And without that bit, none of it means anything. But you try taking a company like ExxonMobil and, and try and create an accurate carbon model of a company like that. The exercise <laughs> itself is almost as complex as solving climate change. And yet, you know, I'm sure they'll have a number of very long-winded, multiple hundred page worth documents that will kind of speak to this, that or the other. But we all know that companies like that are, of course, driving the bulk of climate change. It's not, it's not hidden. It can't be hidden. It is the biggest pieces of pies when it comes to, you know, either fuel delivered to the energy generation industry or fuel delivered to manufacturing or fuel delivered to, to the, to the built environment. Mm. These are where the, so of course, that's where the damage is being done. So how can they have reports that stipulate that they are absolutely all the ISOs and all the certifications and everything else ticked and checked and certified above board? It doesn't make any sense. It's it's fundamentally, transparently, and anybody with any base understanding can clearly see is flawed. So why trust it? Why I, build off it? Why legislate against well, it? Well, this is it. I, I, um, I've said this before, probably on the podcast, but uh, somebody put it well on social media a while ago. They were talking about um, a net zero murder uh, idea. In other words, that you have a, a serial killer who, for every person that they murder, they conceive someone else. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore offset the murders, you know. Um, and at what point, with the, with in particular with the fossil fuel companies, uh, do you start thinking in the same way? And, and by the way, Kit, I should say from looking at your profile a long time ago on LinkedIn, and I looked at it again today, in preparation for this, I I recall that you had a you had a, a period um, of uh, a short enough spell early in your career where you worked for BP. Is that right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, AstraZeneca, BP. I even signed a contract to work with ExxonMobil, um, but but binned it. I made. Uh, an, I'm a chemical engineer by background. I have I have masters in chemeng. Uh, so I was I was going into, uh, I guess, the design and running of chemical plants would would have been, I guess, the, the the highest level kind of strategic approach to my career. And I started to specialize into. Uh, what would it be considered? I, it's called Refinery of the Future. So this was a department that I was in in, in BP that um, was focused on understanding the performance gap that arrives from uh, technologies not doing what they say on the tin because you're strapping them into maybe 70-year-old refineries, brand new stuff strapped to an old refinery. Funnily enough, there are things there that don't behave like they do in a lab. So to expect it to perform as it suggested did on the label is obviously nonsensical. So this department essentially enables the transition of 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 new technologies of valuable advancements into the uh, the built in environment within that kind of construction environment within that the the, the refinery or, or chemical plant and do so with minimizing the performance gap between them. That's that was essentially my job, and it took me retrofit basically. <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I mean, it's preparation for retrofit. It's the thinking behind it. That's that was where I kind of learned that actually, you know, when you because my mother, father, cousin, and sister are all architects. So I was a black sheep. I'd gone way out. And then I'm a laughing stock because I came all the way back, didn't I? So so the, the, with this, with this kind of concept in mind, I was looking at houses with PV being strapped on and thinking, hang on, that's exactly the same thing. A hundred-year-old house with a shiny, tech, sexy bit of eco bling put on onto the building. What does that actually do? Where, where, where is this analysis? Where's the performance gap? The integration engineering seems to be 
completely absent. So how do we actually think about those things? That's kind of what got me interested in it. And then I did my own place. I decarbonized a 1909 arts and crafts dwelling by 81% and uh, then learned a load of stuff. And from there, I just basically stepped out into to consulting. And then after kind of eight years of being a consultant and feeling that I'm, I'm supposed to be helping Joe Bloggs, you know, doing me two up, two downs, council, bits and bobs, you name it. Uh, it ends up going for the kind of, 2080-80-20 rule, which is where 20% of people doing 80% of the damage. So you end up following the carbon and you end up working for richer and richer people. And so you're moving away from where you kind of thought, this is where the, I want to be. But actually, fundamentally, to deliver decarb, you need to drop those people where if I solve you know, their house in an amazing way, which, of course, they never can afford. And I did 10 of them. I've probably not covered what I'd do if I got one rich person sorted out. That, Just for me, like, that is the weirdest but most logical and I guess probably correct argument I've ever heard for um, for focusing on wealthy people. Uh, think about why fuel poverty is politically so integral and why decarb doesn't work. Because if you, you, you want to be voted in and you want to impact those that have the least, you want to focus on fuel poverty, but the reality of the situation is that if you want to decarb the quickest, you focus on those that are the you know, the 20%. Yeah. But and if, so you end up funding, rich. supporting and benefiting the rich. But if you take the rich people and you make their homes, uh, you know, far more energy efficient and you massively reduce their energy costs, how do you stop them uh, going off and flying around more in their private jets? <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> well, I can, but it's an obvious one. I mean, it, with all of this, you can see why my journey is coming around because I, I got to a point, the thing that made me quit consulting, I quit consulting for a number of years. And the, the thing that did it was, um, so, so I always set myself these personal little challenges. So you come on board with a project and there's a brief, a client brief. And you think about the brief, you think, right, what can I do to make that more sustainable? And you kind of plug it in. And the earlier, the better, right? That was always the, the focus. You can, it's fully integrated and, and baked in at the beginning. You don't end up, excuse my French, policing a turd, right? That is the, that, that's the fundamental important aspect. That kind of stage zero one, and I keep on using the RIBA stages and I don't even believe in them, but let's, for the sake of people listening, understanding what I'm talking about. Um, if you're looking at the kind of stage zeros and ones, that's the kind of absolutely critical, that's the point where the sustainability really has the ability to not only deliver true carbon savings, but to do so at a kind of cost parity. That's when you see the kind of those passive house projects that did it at the same price as a normal project, that's because it was baked in then. That's yeah. why that happened. And as soon as you get to these later stages and you have to kind of strap stuff on, the costs fly up, then the budget's breached. And then either you've got some eco angel somewhere or you've got someone that then cuts it and all the strap on stuff falls off the building, business as usual. So this is where the strategy that we were decrying earlier makes absolute sense. Once you have strategy, you're tied to a specific outcome with specific, uh, I don't know, practicalities applied to it, whether that's strategies, materials, whatever. like. That's when it makes sense. Like we do the same for things like websites or communications. If you know how it's going to be used at the end, you can build a much more elegant and effective thing up front. If you're, when you're doing the research, anyway, I'll stop. 
I mean, uh, it's, to- it's, it's totally obvious, but so difficult to bake in. And and so, you know, particularly in the larger projects, the commercial world, um, a lot of my contacts are focused on the actual delivery, you know, the construction of it. So I end up coming in at stages three and four, and it's already getting a real tough challenge for me to convince people to, to kind of actually revisit stages one and two to kind of change the brief because you're going to deliver what you want. I can do all of that. I can get your function, all the ticks of what you want to achieve with the project. I can achieve all of that. I can achieve it better. And I just need to rethink, you know, what it, what it might be, the basic massing or glazing ratios, whatever it might be. So, so, so in this one case, in, in uh, eight years into my career, I, I, I focused on sustainability. I had a project that came in and it was ridiculous. It was a 1,100 square meters, family of four living in this massive mansion, new build mansion. They insisted on ICF. So I had to find an ICF product, you know, which is basically um, kind of a H block of polystyrene with concrete poured in the middle. I had to find an alternative to that. So we were finding like woodcrete, um, it's a product called Durasol is what I was trying to use there, um, which is kind of woodcrete solutions, which were quite interesting. But but anyway, it's, it's all constrained because of this damn brief. And it had a swimming pool inside, a swimming pool outside, infinity pool. It had the, um, massive amounts of glass. It was massively overheating and overcooling all the time. So I had to, um, I had to, I had to work out a way of generating energy. At that time, I was in a in a biomass world, um, so I was thinking, okay, uh, they have a source of timber. Um, we could get certified trip using this methodology, put it into a tri-generation system, which would generate all your hot water for the pools and the house. It would generate your heating and it would generate your cooling all off one system. Pretty cool. And this was quite a few years back, uh, 2015. Um, and, and I was thinking, oh, this is this is awesome. And, and my main thrust was where I got the financial leverage for this was that he had to go to three phase and it was going to cost him like 100 grand, something extortionate in this one location for whatever situation. So I was like, boom, I'm going to deliver all of this within that kind of budget so that you don't have to go three phase and I'll keep you two, single phase on this massive project. And, and that was my kind of challenge and my eco hook, you know, because you can see I'm trying to think of a way of getting somebody that clearly doesn't give a shit. It's just focused entirely on the the the, the kind of keeping up with the Joneses approach. Here's all my eco bling. Isn't it wonderful? I'm a good person. So th- this kind of <laughs> philosophy is, is going through their head. And I'm trying to find a hook that works, that, that's going to d- actually deliver something in reality. And the joke that killed it was... They wanted underfloor heating. So I was like, fine, we can we can do it hydronically with this system. I got underfloor heating in their ground floor and their first floor, which was never going to switch on because it was so high performance by the end of it. Um, it was only going to operate for about one or two months a year. So they weren't even going to benefit from it. I didn't tell them that. I was just like, just, just we're going to do it. It's going to be fine. Anyway, it got down to the point where these this giant glass staircase in the middle of it suggested that they had to have it heated. Like it wasn't enough to have the upstairs oh. and the ground floor heated. And I can't put hydronic in a glass stair tread so, oh <laughs> so, so i was like shit because now i put this this uh this heat mat in it i went over my three phase i was like boom i'm quitting and it was late for that meeting to tell me that because his helicopter was delayed and i was just like i'm off i'm done i'm not quit. i'm not just you quitting should have the staircase out of ice and put the pipe work in and just told them where to go yeah oh my god <laughs> It was a terrible experience. And and that was the point I turned around and found Kevin Anderson, uh, who ran the Tyndall Center at the time, a uh, climate scientist, quite heavily involved in cops and the like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. co-directs it still um but he's he was obsessed with the iphone adoption curve at the time you know this thing that nobody needed and then all of a sudden uh wanted and then completely needed for every aspect of their life how do we get that associated with kind of green tech and the adoption of green tech 
or, or I, I shouldn't use the word green tech, uh, you know, the, the green revolution. How do we get that going? And, and he was kind of focused on that. And, and it really intrigued me. And I went to hear him talk and I said, look, I've got all this information from all these years of consulting on these weird and wonderful projects and, and, and doing stuff myself. Um, and I've actually got a bit of a team that helps me deliver some stuff. And, uh, and I've got quite a lot of cash. So why can't I make an impact? That was the kind of pitch to him. And he said that what you need to do is you need to create this iPhone in the built environment. So I kicked off from that day forwards a, a sort of experimental developments firm whereby I just identified um, kind of just take your Greek philosophy of science, right? Here's your pie. That's your carbon pie. What's your biggest issue? Well, it's the built environment. That's your 40% if you kind of wrap everything else into it. Um, how do I focus on that? Well, within that, what's the big issue? Well, it's uh, it's retrofit, not new build. That's your 80-20 kind of split in terms of proportions of buildings. And then within retrofit, what's our big issues? Whether well, it is hard to treat category that nobody's touching at all. Uh, new build is all wrapped up with legislation. Um, I feel like we should be focusing there. So then kind of that's how it goes. And then I started with this Zetland Road project, which um, was in the magazine. I don't know if you remember. Um, that, oh, I, sent, I sent the link around and we'll include it in the show notes. Yeah. 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 So that was a, a, that was the first crazy project underneath this developments firm. So, you know, we were we were kind of blowing stuff out of the water. It was the first petrochemical free. It was the first concrete free. It was a, a retrofit without extensions, but delivering everything of this kind of grand designs. Nonsense it is extraordinary, Kit. As I say, I think that if there's one... There's three words or two words that sum it up. It's um, it's uh, uh, stained glass triple glazing. <laughs> yeah, right. So, <laughs> right? I mean, first stained glass in a passive house ever. Yeah. You know, that kind of stuff. Um, so it was just. I think we had eight world first or seven world first in a Europe first. The European first being the first passive house plus certified uh, to benefit. Um, so so you know these these are the kinds of claims that we're getting. So you can see I was like not only in that that world of what matters most, but also across all of the different approaches that we could take, how could we kind of take it to the next level that nobody had done, nobody had done, nobody had done. And then from there, I started working on other projects back into the consultancy because I was like, right, I'm ready to go at this again. I'm, I'm refreshed. Two years later, I'm kind of ready to start taking on projects. And um, and I started on the trajectory of kind of taking that further. So I, I did a project called Foxlow, uh, which was a 1909 kind of manor house. And it was just like Zetland on steroids, although we we're only achieving standards um, benefit. It was still bloody hard. And we missed it. We missed it by um, on air pressure test alone. So it's an a ACB what is it? Retrofit two. I should know. I'm about retrofit level two. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so we're at the top level of the retrofit there. But I mean, it's this cop out, isn't it? Because we're just trying to get some tick box for. A, but the the, the problem is oh, there. I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think I think it's helpful to have that because it it, it um, it's you know it, it's it's got to be reassuring for people to make this stuff seem less intimidating if you if you have different standards on the same spectrum to aim for. You know. Yeah, but I mean, what is the carbon light standard? I mean, again, I'm a director here, so I shouldn't be saying too much. But huh. you, reality is that um, they are just doing what Passive House does. And they're just making it easier so that more people will be able to do it within the UK. That's principally the, you know, the, the, the general thrust behind it. Now, yeah. that I've had, you know, I've had board meetings with these guys and I'm trying to get them to consider all these um, other aspects within uh, within kind of standards of what you could achieve, you know, for instance, a, a classic is understanding that kind of whole life carbon picture. And, and yes. I was, you know, what I want to do is I want that standard to be, you know, a base standard. And then we introduce a load of guidance 
that sits next to that standard so that people can aim for all these other things, get feedback from that guidance in terms yeah. of making sure that there's a target and that there's a, a method of measuring it and 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 that the people can get access to that. And then we'll get feedback from people trialing it. And then you can start to include it. And then you can go for, I don't know what, what you're going to call it, but you know, like Passive House, Passive House Plus, Passive House Premium, we could get an ACB retrofit, you know, level three or four or whatever. And you yeah. start to bake them in with these additional targets strapped on it. And it's one of the fundamental issues I take up with with Passive House, and it's just the principal philosophy that they're against from you know from Faust and Faust and all his um, you know thirty years of experience focusing on this kind of operational picture, which still essentially originates from the idea that a car, a house, and a refrigerator do most of their damage to their operational life, which is true to say. But you know the high energy things, but it, it's it's still a mistake. I'm finding I've got categoric evidence of showing massive changes to my specification once you start to bake in the whole life picture yeah. um, and and so you should be considering these things and we have more tools Absolutely. now no, and i think and i think the aecb for their part uh, out of all of those kinds of organizations that i i find them more malleable than nearly any others yeah, uh, more, more kind of pragmatic and more willing to listen to these kinds of things so uh, but with, these are these are just tools for systemic change like yeah. You're absolutely right, Jeff. The AECB, like they're leading the charge, and so they've come from uh, a position of, like the the folk who I like to characterise as passive house zealots. Like passive house isn't appropriate in all situations. It's an amazing standard, and it is something that ideally we would all be able to aim for, but it's not going to happen. What something like the 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 different AECB standards offers you is this incremental gain, but it's it it uh, stimulates systemic change. So it isn't like incremental change like we get in the rest of the the environment, uh, the political environment, the economic environment, which is why things mo move so slowly. Like generally, it's incremental maintenance of a small shift in the status quo. That's why we have the polite test that we were decrying at the start of the conversation. Yeah. Like what the AECB standards do is they make it more accessible. So we're talking about, uh, what, 61,000 retrofits in Manchester that yeah. are required in this phased process. So. The only way you can do that is by getting people to do the work. Trouble is, market can't bear that volume of work because there aren't enough people to do it. There's not enough experience. And the the, the strategies that people are comfortable with can't be applied to all of the typologies of house. There's an awful lot of learning that still needs to be done. So we need these different bits. So at some point, we've got to say, like, beggar it. We don't need to uh, – we can't think about embodied carbon at this point now. We need to build up a base of knowledge because you can't tackle all the problems all at the same time. You know, I don't. I don't buy into that really. I, th I think. Uh, I think we know enough now. We're learning enough about these other subjects that we can start to make. There's going to be quick win uh, solutions that we can, at the very least, that we can integrate into into our our. Yeah, yeah we, we can if you ignore the political environment and the economic environment, which stifles and inhibits change. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it, the one thing we know. I mean, this is what we're proving, right? So what, I'm just starting to get into the the later career where we've we've dealt with these amazing projects across the board. What we said is we were going to have project examples that were extreme in in delivery of all aspects and in every sector of the built environment. So we've done hospitals, schools, we've done uh, you know office buildings and other commercial based premises such as event spaces. Um, we, we've done uh, aspects like, I don't know, the, the the full range of retrofits, the full range of, of new builds. I've got breweries, I've got food halls, restaurants, cafes, 
you know, kindergartens. We've done it all with every possible archetype you can possibly think of pretty much. I've got solutions for you. There are there are some incredibly niche scenarios where I can't quite achieve. So, for instance, the hall that I'm in right now is grade two star listed. It's got moats, a cockpit, and an ice house that came in the country shortly after King Charles II, one of the first in the country. It's tied down from a scheduled ancient monument perspective. It's got a grade two listed bridge as well. So these kind of things, you can imagine, are, are pretty damn restrictive. So the idea is the birthplace of innovation is to pop yourself in the most restrictive situation, right? Yeah. That constraint is what delivers it. And, yeah. and so that was why this opportunity was perfect for us. It also happens to have a uh, five new builds in a paddock out the back that they had permission for, which we've just changed that planning permission and, and now are granted to build five Passive House Premium certified buildings there. So that would be the first premium development globally. So th these are the kinds of things that we're trying to push with. And, and you can imagine that when you're in that constraint environment, like a hall like this, I'm not going to be Passive House certified. I can't get there. No. But what can I be? And that's that's the ask. That's the challenge. That's the the beauty well, of the situation. Well, you're applying the same thinking um, and the same kind of building physics know-how and so on um, uh, to, to a different context, right? Um, and and I think that's the mistake sometimes that people just make where they where you you assume you can't do anything with a, with a building like this, or you become too. Uh, I mean, the conservation officers or whomever are become too restrictive. It, it's that's a fascinating kind of challenge. I mean, like with a project like that, I, I presume you have specific retrofit strategies in mind, do you? Well, we're developing a lot. I mean, this is the point, right? The point is obviously a grade two star listed hall is not going to be representative of a, a vast bulk of the UK. But the mistake is to say that what you need to do then is just trial on those, you know, eight million period properties. That's not. The solution because you never get the project scope to actually deliver you know innovation and change what you want is you want these crazy constrained projects because then you're forced to develop um conservation friendly you know low impact low disturbance type strategies that are highly effective and and that's the that's the lure so for instance one of the weird but and super niche it sounds, but actually super applicable strip strategies I developed with Zetland Road was the fact that we took chimney breasts, which are basically your number one public enemy across you know all period properties, and we knocked them out, but retained them, the outer skeleton of them, knocked out the middle, put all our invisible building services that deliver the passive houses that we require in a modern day, and then basically boxed them in. They're invisible, but I've got a perfect network now to get all the way around these historic buildings. How cool is that? Yeah, it's simple, but it's awesome. And it means that we can actually get your MVHRs and whatnot smashed into these buildings where other people are saying, you know, you can't do it. A, you don't do it unless you've got an air tightness of five or better. And, uh, and B, you're not going to do it without boxing everywhere. And we're smashing those kind of myths out of the park. Amazing. Yeah. Now, I was wondering about, I was sort of thinking back to what you just said now and back to the sort of the iPhone adoption analogy there. How do you make people care about this? Because one thing that I've always found is that we're we're part of a sort of a community, a tight knit community of people who talk about all these things, and we're all nodding along. And I think we all broadly agree on what needs to be done. We know yeah, what the solutions yeah. are. Um, but when I go and talk to people, even we were talking to um, a, a, a partner, sort of an agency we're working with this morning, was talking about his uh, his renovation of his house. You know, we're listening along, and he's got he's getting a new boiler, and he's changing the walls, and he's putting a new bathroom in. 
you know, no, not once did he mention anything near the concept of retrofits or anything like that. Most people just don't either know or care. So, and I think you're absolutely right. We need to get people to actually care about this to make this more of a lifestyle choice uh, of like an aspiration. And it's, I don't think we're there at all just yet, even though it's in the news all the time in one way or another. Really briefly mentioned this grand designs concept earlier as so damaging. It's so damaging. So let's let's just give you a nice little bit of concept. In in the UK, 60% of all the construction in the UK is focused on essentially one thing if you if you to box it together. So have you heard of the terminology modernization? Well, modernization, if you try and define it, because this is the kind of guy I am, I like to define stuff. I'm putting it as there's a new kitchen, new bathroom, open plan kitchen, living, dining space, bit of alfresco an upgraded approach to the building, and maybe if there's money to do a bit more on the facades front and back, right? So that's basically what you're trying to achieve. Now, that modernization, that represents 60% of all construction. That's mental. That's a crazy thing. Now, what proportion of that is done under permitted development? I don't know, but it's high. And what's left after that, if you think about anybody buying a new house, what do they do when they buy a new house? Well, they look at it and they think, I'm going to try and add some value. So then you've got to bring in this concept that I call the, the estate agent's golden checklist, which essentially is like uh, a estate agent will say, I need to have five beds. Sixth bed doesn't really add much. Four beds, you're starting to lose significant value. Five beds, two receptions, ground, st- ground floor, WC and on, uh, utility. Um, and and uh, and and you've got like at least a bedroom with an ensuite for the master as a minimum, ideally two. So it's kind of like a, you know, you get those and you've maximized the value of your property. So you get these folks moving into a new house and they've got, they've read them the grand designs and they've done their little arch dailies and their designs. And they kind of got this lovely idea about what they want to do. And the first thing they're going to do is they're going to smash the back and possibly the side off their house. And they're going to put an extension on. And that's going to increase the surface area to volume ratio they're building. And it's going to swallow a quarter of a million quid immediately on doing that. So now there's no budget left to do whole house thinking. And the rest of the house is done on a shoestring that just delivers you know, a little bit of um, flowery upgrade on the premise of meeting that a golden estate agent's checklist. But there's actually nothing to it around the retrofit. You know, so I'm just trying to state what everybody does. Nobody thinks outside the box. You know, for about 40 grand, I can take almost any domestic building and I can knock out most of the internal walls and completely rearrange where the stairs are. And in doing so, so long as I'm above about 100, 110 square meters, I can deliver pretty much any amount of functionality that you would typically need for a house, a household to live or a family to live in that in that building on a you know, modern lifestyle basis. And that was exactly what Zetland Road did, bearing in mind. It was no extensions. And then it checked, it checked everything that you needed for that golden estate agent checklist and the grand designs. But did all of that where the kind of principal expenditure on achieving that was maybe 40, 50 grand. And then all the rest of the money went on the craziness that was Zetland Road. Okay, so we need to talk to Kevin McLeod then and get him to start. No, well, honestly, it it's so damaging. And, and, and the legislation supports it because, in effect, people are spending their time, money, and effort on a tunnel visioned, not even considering outside of themselves. And it's fully embraced. Legislation does it. Uh, planning laws, et cetera, allow you to do it. But also think about it from the perspective of designers. You know, you, you've got these kind of two routes in domestic industry. You either find a builder that you're buds with or know of or have had recommended, all of which is a nightmare because you don't actually have any understanding as to whether they're any good, uh, even with recommendations. You know, you work for one situation does not mean it's going to work for another. So you've got that kind of route where you go down that route. And the big issue is that you've got no professionalism there, no design thought. You've got no skills that are associated with that kind of holistic picture. 
future. Your other route is you go down the route of kind of at least, you know, if it was one professional project, it would be an architect, right? And you go down that route. Now you've got this, I mean, remember, mother, cousin, sister, archi- uh, father, all architects. And very much baked into that as, as an upbringing, every bloody holiday going was uh, to Bilbao or to somewhere to see some something. Right. So that you, you've got this kind of um, this need for legacy, you know, and, 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 and the need for legacy is baked on, on the deepest kind of fundamental persona of an architect. And it really expresses itself in the way that I want to express my character. You know, if, if you're an architect and you think you're a good architect and people respect you, you could probably, if you were really knowledgeable, be able to pick architects out just by the designs you're looking at. That is that kind of signature that they love. And, and, and retrofit is looked at as an impossibility to deliver any of those kind of aspects. It's absolutely. I am. Um, I think part of it too. Um, I think we're very bad. I mean, it's one of the things we try to do in the magazine is focus on the on on the the experience of. Uh, we're not great at it. We're try, we try to, we try to get better at it. Um, of living, what is it like to live in a different kind of an environment, right? Um, from a comfort perspective and so on. And um, one thing that we, we 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 need to make more of a point to doing because because it really resonates with me when we do it is. It's kind of um, articulating how bad uh, the experience people, most people have in normal normal homes. Um, so we had one in um, an Enerfit project in Cork by Paul McNally Architects um, a few issues back. Um, and it was a great example because the family who lived there had lived in the house prior to the retrofit. So they had the experience of both to talk about. and. Uh, I remember a couple of things that they said, uh, which which made it into the article. Talk like stuff like th- that make it feel more kind of immediate or more real, uh, more tangible uh, to, to to me. Reading about it, um, it's stuff like um, uh, talking about it, having to take your life into your hands, you know, going into the kitchen to make a cup of tea, or having to microwave the Nutella to be able to to spread it, you know. Um, so that that kind of I mean that's kind of quite an extreme example, but the point is that. I think people don't maybe necessarily acknowledge enough um, the discomfort, the misery, the rooms that you have to to, to clean or that, that you don't use, for instance, you know. Um, uh, well, uh, until we start to put a tie and assets value to a notion of comfort, you're on a hide into nothing with that. Like, no one will care. We're not used to comfort as we've often said on this podcast, like we in this country or in the within the British Isles, Jeff, because that's the geographical no, landmass, no. the British Isles, including <laughs> no. Ireland. This is yeah. you're trying to resuscitate a dead thing. <laughs> you're gone. You're gone. Like, you're getting smaller and smaller. Yeah. <laughs> we said we would avoid dodgy political areas today. Didn't we? <laughs> like we're just not used to the, the notion of living in comfort in a home like it's not part of what we expect we expect the property price to rise we expect the asset balance either is Ah, the comfort comfort. brexit you know it's no 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 no. in my day we used to be happy sitting there getting tuberculosis and uh... yeah yeah. we want an a comfort (laughs) swimming in sewage (laughs) ice on the inside of the windows you know what you're what you're saying yeah yeah really what's what really is important well actually the interesting aspect here is that actually I think comfort is transportable. You take the comfort with you when you move from home to home. If you walk into a home, an un, 
retrofitted home, uninsulated home, and you walk into it, right? It's going to be feel cold, echoey, etc. So the fabric of the home is not nice, and you make it comfortable by putting a furniture, making putting some nice curtains, which hopefully are quite thick, so thermally insulated, and you start doing that. So to some extent, the comfort concept comes from the things you put in it. And I think, I, and again, I would love to know this because I've never been into a, a retrofitted home or a, pass, or a passive house um, home. When you walk into an empty home, does it feel comfortable because you don't get those drafts, et cetera, et cetera? So at a bare minimum, just four walls, does that house deliver a level of comfort that normally is associated with the things that you put in it to make it feel more comfy and warm? So, yeah, in terms of the most palpable impact associated with people stepping for the first time into a passive house, particularly in an urban zone, is the acoustics. When you, when you step in, you shut that door behind you, this kind of airlock uh, almost closes and it's like deathly silent. So when, when you've got that kind of air tightness on a busy domestic you know, road uh, in, in center of Manchester or whatever, you, you don't even realize it until it closes and then your motorways disappear and the traffic disappears and everything else disappears. And it is bizarre. And it's it's a it's a it's a kind of a difference. It's not always received positively, you know, because there are folk that like to sit with the bird noise coming in or or whatever else, and that kind of freaks them out. It's like no, open no, a bloody window. You can't open a damn window in a passive house. Myth number one broken. Let's move on. You know, so so you you get this kind of response. But I think that is for me is the most palpable is the acoustics. It just immediately feels different the way the sound returns to you and, and the fact that there's a total ability to talk clearly uh, in any place in your house, in any location in, on the planet, pretty much, you know, that that's a big one. And then, and then what you realize that takes a lot longer uh, is that you don't get a daily swing in temperature. You know, that's, that's, a, that's, that's the next kind of most palpable thing is that you don't get that daily swing in temperature. You know, when, it, when it comes towards your kind of evenings, you start getting your blankets as you sit on the couch or get into bed or whatever it is. And you kind of feel the temperature differences, the swings within the house. And so you've got these kind of spikes of up and down that come with heating systems switching on and off and, and with the, with the cycles of the sun. Right. And, and, and that's disappears. So that's another quite distinct palpable change. And then you get this kind of annual thing where you realize that everything's much more constant and that you've not got any kind of CO2 headaches. That's, an, I guess, is the next big one. So in, in our office here in Lim Hall, we don't have proper ventilation systems. So we've kind of retrofitted, you know, single room heat recovery devices and stuff. And it's still pathetic. And it's amazing because we, we're, we're measuring nine different variables in 14 different stations across this building and have done three years. And that information is telling us a huge amount about just un how unhealthy it is. And then you start, when you start tagging events like headaches in people, lack of concentration, stuffiness, wanting to stand up and open windows, you start tagging the data with those kinds of actions. You start realizing, oh my goodness, this is a very different way to live when you're in a passive house because you're not doing any of those things. You know, that, yeah. that is a fundamental change in the way in which you're living within the building. You know, so so these are the kind of totally palpable changes. Yeah, it's interesting that uh, what Alex described was changes which one uh, a mobile that are transported from home to home. And you described, so like curtain fabric changes or curtain fabric delivered comfort. But kits describing like actual fabric in fabric first terms, and yeah. they're they're quite different. Yeah, right. So one of the things, or well, there are two things we should talk about. It might be.
be that we have to leave one of them to one side, but we haven't really spoken about Ecospheric, your firm. And yeah, we need to do that, but we will definitely have you back on, Kit, because you know, you, yeah, yeah, it would be a disservice not to, you know. But um, it would also we should also talk about uh, the heritage aspect because that's come up in a few conversations we've been having recently, particularly with regard to planning. Uh, so I was having a conversation with Lloyd Alter, one of our co-hosts now, I suppose, and uh, Toby Cambray, who was was Toby Cambray. I was sure Kit knows him very well. Great Green Gage. He's a, Green Gage, uh, that's it. a fellow, fellow polymath like Kiff. Yeah. So Lloyd keeps talking about Marks and Spencers. He's amazed. He's delighted with Michael Gove at the moment and um, what that means for embodied carbon. This but- is the decision not to allow uh, the knocking of this historic building in London, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's On it. the grounds of embodied carbon is p- part of the discussion, at least part of the, the consideration. That's it. Exactly. So uh, Toby said he'd been through the, the document. Or one of the documents around it, and just did a quick keyword search, and he found equal, almost equal mentions of the word carbon as the word heritage. And it seems like heritage is a massive issue in terms of innovation, but it's also a massive issue in terms of inhibiting progress, because planning all too often is inhibited by heritage concerns. So Ricky, uh, a friend of ours uh, from university, Man and Jeffs, He's now uh, a director at an architectural firm uh, and he's a chartered town planner. So he's worked for local authorities and in private practice. And he got in touch with us because he's aghast. He's, you know, he's got a couple of kids now. And so he's thinking far into the future. And he's aghast at how little progress they can make in terms of more sustainable buildings, higher performance buildings in the area that he uh, works in because of. NIMBYs using planning as a way to stop anything happen. So, I mean, this is an interesting one and it kind of, it's getting onto one of the, I think this would probably be the first thing that we've discussed on the list of topics that I put forward earlier. <laughs> uh, so, so good. Nice little segue. So historic England is, is one of my targets at the moment. I probably shouldn't use that word because it's, uh, it's a, a, a slightly aggressive, but the Reality of this is that I, I, I banner all of this under what I call climate heritage and that there's a international agreement under that banner uh, of which one of the signatories is Historic England. And I think you've got folk like SPAB and IHBC and all these other sort of national, when I say national, I mean UK national uh, uh, groups that are kind of really scrabbling around to try and understand um, you know, where we can get case studies from. You know, what's very interesting is that there was a a, a report on um, sort of sustainable case studies released by Historic England. And as you go through them, you know, you'll get one project that's 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 considered sustainable or made, it, made the cut because of one thing that they did, a innovative heating system or whatever it might be. And you step through, and I think there's something like 28 examples or something. And every single one is like they've done one thing, one thing, and they've made the cut. The only what I'd call holistic project that's considered in the entire document is Zetland Road. And if you look on their website, historically in the website under sustainability, the only case study is Zetland Road. So just to put it incredibly clearly, they don't have the solutions. They don't have the knowledge. And I've met with them on, on, a, on, on a couple of occasions, but one in particular around, I wanted to a pitch to them that Lim Hall could be a, a case study for them where we work together as a technical team for Historic England and my technical team work together to deliver uh, on a on an arsenal of solutions 
which come under the climate heritage banner, which start to, for the first time, break out of this major issue, which is the, the standard response from anyone planning in conservation and historic England is it's a case by case basis. So can I please do this? What are the sort of things that you would like me to do? I'm sorry, it's a case by case basis, which means you've got to go out and fund huge amounts of time, effort and money for incredibly expensive consultants to tell you what you should do, put it all into a package, deliver it and then expect at least 50% of the times for it to be booted back because it hasn't conformed to something properly. That is so inefficient. It's unreal. And you're drinking the money that's needed to deliver change. So what you actually want is you want there to be a bunch of, 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 of kind of agreed upon strategies and solutions. And, and if there are five ways of doing one thing, that they're prioritized. So, you know, you know which is going to be preferred. And, and, so, and so this is the arsenal that I think is necessary to be publicly available that gives the guidance also to the next big issue with all of this, which is in planning, it comes down to opinions. It might be one person's opinion, often a man, one person's opinion that says yes or no, I agree with, I don't agree with. And you can take them to appeal. And generally, if you're rich enough to take somebody to appeal, you get your way. You know, because you're going to probably you're going to throw the book at it. But you know, peels costing between like fifty and quarter of a million grand to to kind of knock these things back at them. That that's again insane. This is completely untenable. So what we're really coming down to is a number of you know artificially powerful people that are saying yes or no. You know, the whole committee thing when you know when something goes to committee. This is because. Uh, before it can go to committee, the planner needs to rec recommend it for approval. And if it's recommended for a refusal, it never gets to committee. So it can only get there if it's gone. It's still, so any stage gate is down to an opinion, an opinion that's generally misinformed based on no real guidance and absolutely no premise for training to be in that position. In fact, the only premise for, for planners is experience. It's the only way in which they employ when you're going into planning. And what's really annoying is that when you do have a huge amount of experience, which of course teaches you a lot, you generally make a shed load more money as a private planning consultant, because of course, you know all the people in that industry, in that uh, local authority, and you know what to tell them. So that you're a highly effective person to get your planning through. So then you become the person that will be charging good rates, serious money to pull all of those through. But if you either miss these people that help you get your planning through and you're therefore much less likely to get planning or you hit them and you still have to pay a fortune for them. You know, so this whole thing, I don't like the word, but it's starting to feel a little corrupt, isn't it? Well, it's it's like we were talking about politi politess in planning. Like it is the, the if you can play the game, if you can use the form and you don't rock the boat and you don't challenge things, you can get what you want. Or alternatively, in the same circles, if you've got enough money, you can get in almost anywhere and make things happen as you would like. I need uh, to get you a statistic that you're going to love. I can't remember it. I think it's about 60%. But it was in the last document that I did, the last article that I did with the Financial Times. Um, and the statistic was the number of conservation officers that have quit across the UK. So we're at a 40% capacity and all the ones that have quit are the ones with experience. So we're in this like dearth of, and it's, and it's, it's, you get two personality types principally that go into conservation as a newbie, 
If you're new to conservation, you either say no to everything because you're shit scared about making a muck up on a historic building, or you say yes to everything because you're new and you just like to be positive and you're yes about it. And it's totally random as to who you get because anybody with any experience, you know, it's taken three years for Warrington Borough Council, where we're now based, to get a conservation officer that's lasted. So I've had four conservation officers in three years. That's where ah. I've got planning permission because when you deal with a house that's constrained like this, I have to get planning permission to strip my balustrade or put a fence in my garden. I've got a fence application that took over a year and a half to be approved. <laughs> I just, you know, I just want to highlight that these are the these are the nonsense aspects that anybody in construction are having to deal with, and and the whole complexity and big issue and everything we're passionate about, we don't have time for. We don't have the money left for it. So we need smooth-talking eco-warriors, as it were, to, to fight the fight in planning. Like the, the, what is it, Infernal Affairs or The Departed. We need to groom someone who's moving in those circles from a young age. Like, the, like Jack Nicholson grooms Matt Damon to become a police officer. We need to find some public school lad. We need to brainwash them and we need to get them in there. But in every area in the country. But we need we need to bring in uh, uh, metrics, you know, quantifiable kind of requirements uh, uh, for for planners to have to kind of um, to, to, to use, right? Uh, because it should it should be should be that you that you're with, within all the restrictions that you have to to face with with some exist with some existing buildings. It should be that it's possible to to enable the decision to be made more based on. On, uh, on, 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 as I say, quantifiable targets, on some sort of way of assessing the building and what you're proposing to do to it that doesn't just fall down on one person's opinion. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. I actually feel like the NPPF, the, the National Planning Framework for the UK, is moving in the right direction and that there are now more and more clauses that I can start to hang a hat on. So I, I'm getting more leverage. Two years of covid was actually a fantastically good thing for us, not only in, in, in showing the world how scary kind of changes can be and, and, and how, how it kind of can collapse, you know, that, that, that our status quo is more fragile than, than people actually think it is. That's really important. Also, two years sat on a couch watching David Attenborough, you know, so, so there's actually bizarrely in a, via a digital media, there's, there's been, um, the, a, a reconnection with nature, which mm. is quite interesting because via the digital media, but then in reality, people taking walks more, you know, the amount of people that are outside more, it's gone up hugely because of COVID, because they've had the time and they to, to, to understand and catch up and think and, and you know, and, and all these changes that people made to their jobs and to the way that they've they've approached the world and they're, they're refocusing on things that matter to them. So there's there's been a real reshuffle. It's almost like, you know, somebody shook it, shaking the sieve. Things have changed. There, there are there are things have fallen through, and and, and things that have, have rejiggled in new positions. And it's been a fantastic wake up call. And I found, from a sustainability perspective, in terms of clients, in terms of design teams, in terms of uh, ITTs, you know, um, invites to tender, uh, and it, and in terms of you know the, the the sustainability environment, politically, policy, all of these elements have changed quite dramatically, and that there is now a pressure that, that that feels like it's right up my ass. And that is great because I can use that <laughs> to shift stuff. 
I mean, it's so fantastically useful to have that. And I'm, I'm still really sensitive to these roadblocks that exist. These, these roadblocks around um, the greenwash is one of the biggest roadblocks. And this grand designs aspect, another massive roadblock, a policy roadblocks. There are still a load of roadblocks out there, but the, actually there's this almost feels like an unexploded bomb sat right underneath everybody. Well, I want yeah. to say, uh, use this as an opportunity now to lead into um, the research that you've been doing. I don't know how you've been finding the time, given how uh, how much activity there is now uh, to, to do it. But you mentioned in the email you sent beforehand a number of different kind of research projects that Ecospherica are doing at the moment. And it would be remiss of us not to try and focus on some more of them. So if we start with, the, you mentioned the Lyme PhD. Who is it that's doing the, the PhD? Uh, it's a chap that we employ in house called Luke Dickens. He's a cat graduate um, and, and a building physicist. Isn't and he, Dickens a wonderful name for somebody who, who's going to hopefully contribute to our understanding of, of, of you know Victorian buildings and so on? Yeah, absolutely spot on. And and he's incredibly passionate about it. And um, it's been slightly. I mean, basically, we 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 meet. Hmm. Let's just start in a in a much better place here. Ecospheric as a as a company employs purely on cultural fit. We don't find people that know what we need them to know almost ever. So what's the point employing on the basis of, of skills and knowledge? We, 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 we pick people on the basis of what they want to do with their lives, what they've already changed in their lives, and what they want to impact going forwards in their lives. That's essentially how we pick people. So Luke was the perfect fit for us. And I was trying to understand how we can then squeeze him into this weird a uh, plethora of things that we're involved in. And so the fact that he ends up in this position is is not, it's like it's fated as opposed to, you know, contrived particularly. And, and that's kind of true to say with just about everyone and everyone in, in the office, there's nearly 20 of us now. We we are, we're all like this, me, we're, we're just like this. And these debates that we're having now is a, is a general like break and lunchtime thing every day. So that's how the conversation goes. We're rather intense bunch. <laughs> so the, the purpose of, of this, though, is that we're, we're constantly kind of mulling these over. And the reason what you're mistaking for articulation is a distillation of these conversations. That's what it is. It's because we are constantly nibbling at it, chewing on it, you know, supporting it with studies, media outputs, case studies, experience these are fed into this what we call the hive mind and 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 our general knowledge goes up because of it and we kind of have specialisms that sit within it so luke's specialism is around um we, we've got him into woofy right and he, so if for any of you who don't know so uh, they do a 1d and a 2d it's probably the world's most advanced i'm going to get shouted out for saying that it's got the best database uh, for for supporting hydrothermal analysis, which is essentially looking at moisture, in this case, particularly in the vapor phase, but it looks at how moisture behaves in buildings. And that's a really fundamentally important aspect because just to be very sort of 
clear about what happens when you make a building high performance on a fabric first basis, like a passive house, is that the as the, the insulation increases in thickness or performance, the gradient in temperature increases. And therefore, you're quicker or you've got a thicker body of, of material for which you start to hit the dew point. And what you need to have a problem is, let's say you've got um, internal conditions of 20 degrees, 60% relative humidity. You need nine degrees centigrade and a point of nucleation, i.e. a cavity or a gap somewhere. Those are the two things that you need to get moisture in, in a kind of an interstitial situation, i.e. in the middle of this buildup. Right. So we need to study this because as you make buildings perform better, the risk of moisture increases. Is that clear? That needs to be clear because that's the fundamental premise of anybody doing sustainable design needs to consider moisture. Absolutely. So when you say so what do you mean by perform better? Like what are the conditions that are well for starts, I presume he means not failing. And in other words, not having uh the nightmare of say floors sagging or whatever because joysticks have got wet, that kind of stuff, you know. That that'd be the probably the worst case scenario, that kind of yeah, yeah. So, so there's the moisture effect, but I guess when I'm saying when it performs better, I'm talking about the, the inherent conservation of energy principles associated with the building. So I like to use that phraseology, not fabric first, because actually that's in my case, it's fabric second. It's nowhere near as sexy. That's not for media, but it's fabric second. For me, it's passive design first, which is all the stuff you can get for free just by thinking about things smartly and holistically. It's like on the paper design as opposed to any brick and mortar, any spade in the ground. Yeah. Um, so fabric fabric first is not right. It's fabric second. It's passive, uh, passive design first. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of when I talk about the performance of a building, I'm talking about it in terms of uh, in the case of moisture, it's around the air tightness of a building, the ventilation mechanisms within the building, the fabric properties of that building, and the thermal performance of that building, i.e. U-values of, of that building. And those kind of things combined together give you the cocktail of what creates problems in the moisture environment, which then can lead to things like catastrophic failure of structures or okay. say, building syndrome you know um you talk about you know the the black spot molds and 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 cellar or or, or wet rots and dry rots and all those kinds of things well that's so it that because- I, I would worry about that because um the catastrophic ones are almost i wouldn't say less of a worry but they're the ones yeah, i agree where the problem becomes manifest. health building health is your critical impact that's your bulk problem yeah yeah but if you're doing i'm oh, sorry Dan, if you're doing all those bits, so you've got your air tightness, but you've got your ventilation, you've got a more stable temperature, so the the air can hold more water without it condensing on the walls. You've got less fluctuation, so there's less opportunity for mold to grow and create those health risks. So how does moisture become the problem then in well, a because- high performance building? Well, for, for you to really get your head around that, you need to study the history of of membranes. So if, if you go, <laughs> it's, it's one of those yeah, things. Right, yeah. <laughs> if you go back in time, we used to think pre-80, well, if you go back far enough, everything was vapor open. So it wasn't something that was on the agenda. It wasn't a question. And we certainly didn't have high thermal performance buildings and therefore creating this gradient, which caused the issues. So our damp was much more penetrative by nature. You know, so so your your number one cause of damp on buildings in a traditional sense are chimneys followed shortly after, but actually it's, Flat roofs, then chimneys. So, so those are your kind of b- big issues around moisture penetration. You can see that that's around your flaunching, flashing, pointing, and and and, and those elements failing. Right? That's that's how this is happening. 
Um, when you come through to about the 80s, people started to understand that this warm, moist air, if it started its journey across a building piece of building fabric with insulation in it, uh, it, there's a problem going to occur. So if you put the insulation, this is a good one to understand for EWI, IWI, external wall insulation, internal wall insulation. If you put EWI on, <laughs> what you do is the, 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 let's call it a masonry component in, in a traditional sense, is on the inside of it. And that means that that masonry tends towards the internal conditions of that building. If the, if the EWI is in place, what's happening is you're, let's think of it, I mean, you're seeing my hands and the people on the blog won't, but let's say you've got a 20 degree line coming in, so that's your internal conditions. You get very little drop across that kind of masonry component. It might be 18 by the time it gets to the other side. Then you get this really steep gradient down across uh, the insulation, and then you you terminate your zero degrees outside in your winter condition, let's say. Um, so in, in that circumstance, the dew point, the, the first point in which you're below that nine degrees in that kind of 20 degrees, 60% scenario, average scenario, you're, you're in this scenario where your, your dew point's not a problem. It's on the outside of the fabric. Uh, you don't need to worry about it. You put that, that insulation on the inside. Now your gradient of drop goes across the insulation and the, and the fabric of the building principally, which is all your structure and everything, is, is more like the same temperature as the exterior. And so what's happening in that scenario is that this junction between your insulation on the inside and your fabric now becomes a place where there's a cavity and that is temperatures below nine degrees. And any, any, any kind of air volume starting the journey through there will condense in that location. Especially if you've got so the, the, this kind of really common uh, uh, tech, uh, approach um, of an insulated plasterboard without particular attention to air tightness, where you've got an opportunity for moisture-laden air to get in at, say, the skirting board or something like that, um, and then hit land behind the insulation on the back of that insulated plasterboard. Um, and and then you've got uh, all hell breaks loose, right? You know, you're you're stealing my thunder because that's your 1980s, right? In the 1980s, what was happening was you'd put on some non-breathable insulation on the inside of this building, and then you'd put like a polythene layer over the top of it. That was essentially how you you put on your insulated plaster solution, and that was and that was even if you bothered with the polythene layer, as Jeff was hinting to, in a lot of cases you didn't. But with that polythene layer in, that went in as a vapor barrier, and these terminologies are really important. Whether you're dealing with a damp proof membrane or course, a DPM, or you're talking about vapor barriers, which is a kind of general terminology for all of those things, which hilariously includes terminology like building papers which are generally not papers at all, um, they all sit in this vapor barrier world. And then you've got the very other end of this extreme uh, uh, spectrum of, of breathability, let's call it. Um, <coughs> SDs is, is what we measure it in. And you've got breather membranes at the top. So breather membrane you find kind of behind facades and underneath roofs. And they're usually on the very outside and their principal purpose is weather tightness. And what they're doing is they're allowing moisture um, in the vapor phase through it completely freely. Uh, and, and so they're at the very other end of the spectrum. And then what we're about to discuss is the is the bits in the middle, which are either known as a vapor control layer uh, or or known as a uh, intelligent vapor control layer. And those are the kind of two categories. And that's the important thing to get your head around is that, that you can be intelligent about it. So so <clears throat> if you use a vapor barrier, your problem is that you can never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, introduce one of these barriers in perfection. Because if you could, a vapor barrier would be good enough. The problem is that every time you put a baton on your wall, the plasterboard on the wall, you're puncturing this vapor barrier. Uh, there was a lovely study by ProClimber that showed in, a, I think it was 100 square meters, if you had one meter strip cut with a flappy bit of membrane like that with a Stanley knife, you'd get 900 times increase in moisture across that layer. 
So little holes make humongous differences in terms of moisture transfer in these scenarios. So you get yourself a, a piece of polythene, you start stapling it everywhere and then screwing battens and then screwing plasterboard, you have no chance. And that's excluding the fact that generally that's only done for a, a piece of your wall, not the whole house. So things can go around. So you've got no control over this in reality or not more than, I mean, there's another great statistic. If I was to send a space shuttle to space as, as a NASA, you know, well, I should say European Space Agency, uh, my, my spaceship would need to be 1,000 times more airtight than a passive house. Right. So, um, so we've covered why moisture is a problem in high-performance buildings. Now, what were we talking about? Well, I'm just trying to say that we came forward to this vapor permeable solution and that causes issues and the barriers cause issues. So you need something in between, right? And, and that intelligence, what that does is it says instead of having a fixed diffusive vapor diffusivity, a fixed breathability, you have one that varies or you have one which is bi-directional. So there's a com yeah. com company called ProClimber that make Intello or a company called Seager that make Myrex. These are the only two real products to look at. There are others on the market, but their problem is that the, the breathability from, from its most tight to its most uh, open uh, are, are much smaller than these products. So you want quite a big sort of change from summer back diffusion environments to your winter scenarios. So that's what these kind of membranes bring to bear. And so, you know, you've got to bear in mind that, that with the best will of the world, you know, you, you're not going to create a scenario where you stop this, this air from, from taking the journey. And so you can't go to non-breathable materials, particularly if you're dealing with external environments that are highly porous and that hold water and there's water buffering uh, components associated with it. And then you need to sort of balance things up between capillary activity, which is moving stuff in the liquid phase and breathability, which is moving stuff in the vapor phase. I know this is a bit of a dump, but it's actually fundamental information. It's actually, if you think about it, not that complicated. You don't need a PhD in this stuff to just kind of understand that you want intelligence. You have to have a, an internal membrane to stop that journey in the main. You need to have ventilation to stop that humidity from climbing in the first place. Mm. Ideally, you reduce the amount of water that's in there. So you need to be careful in your bathroom design and kitchen design and extract positions. So you're, you're kind of removing the fundamental sources, present, preventing those sources from increasing the relative humidity of the inside, stopping them from starting the journey across that building envelope. You know, these are all, and then when it does get wet, design for it to get dry again. That's it. That's your fundamental rules of, of good design. That's fantastic. And given if you don't need a PhD, why have you got a colleague doing a PhD? And admittedly, it's, in a, it's a specific area of this uh, lines uh, in the context of building lines in the context of of his, uh, of what well, what did you say? Traditional hot lime impact on moisture and carbon within historic buildings. So what precise uh, massive digression from from that starting subject? No, no, no. no. Um, I mean, yes, it, it is. But <laughs> but so so Luke is Luke is a chap that's trying to look into hot lime. I moved into to Lim Hall. Hot lime sounds, sounds funny. Christmas yeah. 2020, right? And yeah. one of the things that I I was doing at the time was I was specifying lime-based products across all of my construction processes. And the reason for this is it's capillary activity and vapor diffusivity and the kind of compatibility with historic buildings. It's all about you ever walk past the building and you see bricks. Brick fascias popped off or stone fascias popped off, that furring, that, that damage that occurs, that spooling, all of that's related to this kind of concept. What's amazing is that um, 
<laughs> I didn't realize, but there's two worlds of lime. There's a hydraulic lime and, and a hot lime. And these are very different. So when you specify lime, you're specifying typically an NHL-based lime, which is um, a hydraulic lime. Which you're, 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 There were studies that have shown, and I don't necessarily agree with them, um, that, that uh, lime... Could be you could be specifying a line that's much softer, so the kind of towards the twos ends, but it's actually acting much much harder and can still cause these sorts of damage. And I was kind of understanding um, a, 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 an, an issue there fundamentally, which is that th this is not making sense, and I need to understand line more. So what Luke did was drive into a traditional method that kind of um, principally died back in World War II with the mass, mass manufacture of concrete, and that we're trying to relearn all the things we knew back then. And, and understand why it's amazing at becoming like a motorway for moisture and also prevents all of these other aspects of, of damage because it's softer than the masonry units around it. Uh, cutting a long story to short, as we need to cut this story to short, um, we learned a lot. It wasn't as carbon beneficial as we thought it would be because lime in itself, whilst it absorbs CO2, uh, isn't as it's very, very high energy in its own right, it's still masonry based product. And whilst hot lime offers some real solutions, it's bloody complex. And what I'm desperate to do is produce a black box of hot lime. And it's hard. I'm not there yet. So <clears throat> you need to have, you know, a simplicity to a process if it's going to be mass adoptable. Um, but what's fascinating is him moving on to other research around things like subfloor voids, where I'm trying to deliver what would be the most decarbonized uh, kind of foundation and floor system full stop. Uh, where we're trying to, you know, a typical insulated raft with your kind of 20 tons of carbon per house and your concrete and your XPS or EPS. You do that in a uh, glass wall, like foam glass with limecrete. You get down to about 15 tons. It's just not good enough. It's twice the price. So we can't really go down that route. So I'm then looking at a solution, which is modern methods of construction installed in two days, whole house up in, in, in uh, uh, just two weeks. Um, for the for the bulk frame insulation inside and outs already on just not the finishes um, <clears throat> and this kind of process is is going to have carbon impacts of around about two tons of carbon and it goes down to minus eleven if you allow for biosequestration and the entire premise of this is hinged on the ability for me to make a uh, the, the complexity around a subfloor void and its moisture environment work with how the ground levels interact with a, a timber-based construction, because there's all these rules around 150 mils above ground level for sole plates and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. So building warranties and the change of the way in the industry thinks about timber. So there's a lot there, but fundamentally, Luke needs to crack it. Subfloor voids are really, really complex. I mean, you do need a PhD for this stuff. Yeah, well, you're <laughs> right. Yeah, you don't want to build into rocks or whatever, you know, so... But it's like, you know, you fundamentally think that that, that you're, you're having lots of ventilation underneath a subfloor void is a good thing. It's one of the worst things that you can do. And that's just, a, you know, it's a mind-blowing thing for me because I've been for my entire career making sure that we've got good cross-flow ventilation or even enhancing it with mechanical, uh, like MEVs and stuff. And the reality is that you, um, it's not that simple and that you you need to understand that when you're when it's warm outside and you bring warm air to your subfloor mm. void, inherently you're going to get condensation. It it reminds me a bit of the wood fiber insulation uh, companies advising to, to to apply wood fiber directly to 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 the interface of a wall, not having a cavity um, for precisely the same reason, I guess you know. Yeah, for the monolithic buildups. Yeah, I mean, in, in this circumstance, it's it you've got kind of two principal 
things that you've got to bear in mind. You've got to work incredibly hard to stop the sources of moisture from getting underneath there. So your number one approach, which is already a given, I can give that as fact, is the uh, is the sort of suppression layers that go into that subfloor void. And then, and then the next one is making sure that no other sources of moisture can get in there. And then the, then the next one on there is you start to understand that, do you want to try and get the area underneath that subfloor void to be essentially tracking the temperature of the outside, in which case you need really extreme levels of air exchange, or do you want to actually seal it up? So you get very, very little exchange between the two. And, and if you do seal it up, but then what if moisture still gets in? You're in a problem. It's that like 1980s conundrum that I gave you earlier. So then you've got to think about well, is what kind of belts and braces can I deliver? Do, do I put in a mechanical system which essentially says, okay, if the temperature outside is equal or lower to the temperature underneath my, my floor, can I switch on? Yeah. That's a good thing, right? So this is not, not simple. It's really complex. But hopefully if we can crack this in a simple way and a simple result, we will unlock 20, 15, 2, minus 13. That's a massive shift for every single new build house that ever goes in. Absolutely. So yeah. that's one to watch then. One oh, amongst yeah. many others. So uh, mindful of the time and taking this uh, intervention as an opportunity to wrap up because Jeff has to split uh, in a minute. Um, where can people find you and keep track of what you're up to? Yeah, so Jeff keeps on saying, where do I find the time to do all of this sort of stuff? The one thing that I'm really bad at is putting myself out there and explaining to people about these kinds of things. So I do rely on Jeff and others to to put m me out there. Well, it's not me, it's the information uh, that we're gathering, uh, really, that, that that people need to know. We have a website, so ecospheric.co.uk. Um, you can head there and there's some information there. Um, I mean, really, if you've got if you've got schemes that you think will have an impact, get in touch because either we will directly help you or we'll put you in con in contact with those that can help you. And that's what I want more than anything is people to be taking action. You know, because to be to be really frank, I can try my best as I have today to explain concepts in a way that's digestible. But actually, we don't need everybody to know all this stuff. It's mm -hmm. it, you, you know, knowing a little is really dangerous in this industry. <laughs> so really what you want to do is you want to model up front. You want to make good decisions holistically up front. You need people to help you do that. And once you've done that, you then need people to help deliver the reality of that situation. So if you want us or others like us to do it, you're welcome to get in touch and we'll signpost you to where you need to be. We'll put all the links in the show notes. Um, yeah, Kit, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it's been great. Uh, I'm looking forward to the edit because I think I've only probably taken in a half of what was offered. Uh, so, yeah. Um, well, we'll definitely have you back on again. Um, yeah. I think we will pick a single subject next time. An awful lot of fun. Yeah, cheers. No worries. And, you know, just I guess the final point is that we're still barely scratching the surface of all of this, right? This is yeah. the iceberg situation that we're in here. So we can talk forever. Jeff and I do talk regularly for very long periods of time. And, <laughs> you know, I can give that in this kind of more public forum happily, freely, and and forever. So you just keep on giving me a bell and we can we can delve in. There's a, a, a lot of information in that kind of high, hive mind that I want to put out there. And our media will pick up. We will get more. We're doing blogs and vlogs and TV and other things. It's coming with these developments. But... We're, we're we're at the moment 
and, and we need to stop focusing on new things and pushing further. We need to actually consolidate and distribute this information at some yeah. point. But we, I, I'm, you know, I am. I just kind of keep on chasing these crazy things because it's really exciting and interesting. Cool. But that will come. Yeah. Well, brilliant. All right. Awesome. Cheers. Um, everyone at home, thank you for listening. And uh, cheers for joining us. Join ACAN, join the ACB, join the IGBC. Oh, what, what's next, Jeff? The consultancy, the magazine. You yeah, know. yeah, yeah. So email us at uh, first name at zeroambitions.partners, Alex, Jeff, or Dan. Um, oh, there's one I keep. Oh, share it. If you get some out of this, you probably know someone else who will as well. So please share it with them. Um, if you have already, cheers. Oh, and review it. And if you can't be bothered, don't worry about it. It's fine. Thanks, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you. Yeah. Bye.